0: Welcome to the Nixon Now Podcast, I'm Jonathan Maroyas. This is brought to you by the Nixon Foundation. We're broadcasting from the Richard Nixon Presidential Library in Yorba Linda, California. You can follow us on Twitter at Nixon Foundation or at NixonFoundation.org. Today we're here to talk with a man who played no small role in American politics in the last half century. His name is Stephen Hess. He's a senior fellow emeritus in governance studies at the Brookings Institution. He served as a professor of media and public affairs at the George Washington University, and as an advisor to Presidents Carter and Ford, and on the White House staff during the presidencies of Eisenhower and Nixon. He's the author of a dozen books, including a biography of President Nixon, and his latest book, which we'll talk about today, Bit Player, My Life with Presidents and Ideas. Mr. Mister Hess, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: A great pleasure, Jonathan.
0: Let me start off with the title, Bit Player. What does it mean to be a bit player?
1: <laughs> I guess it's, it's a movie term, as any... Uh, where you hear it most often, and that is somebody who plays minor roles, usually in large scenes or events. I I actually uh, got it for the title of my book uh, from John McCain, uh, who had uh, mentioned it in a very important speech he had given a couple of years ago at the Convention Center in Philadelphia. And I thought, gee, if it's good enough for John McCain... Uh, certainly uh, is good enough for me. I liked it. It sort of fit what I had been doing over 40 or even over 50 years, in which uh, I always seemed to be around very often when important events, starting even when I was 19 years old. And I was uh, uh, at the at the convention uh, in, Sanford, in uh, Chicago, in which uh, uh, Dwight Eisenhower uh, uh, was versus... Uh, uh Bob Taft certainly the most exciting and important convention of my lifetime and there I was uh the young man on the floor of the convention so I always seemed to be around very important events and, and so I, I was comfortable uh calling myself a, a bit player I, it's it was certainly criticized by those whose job was to sell a book because it didn't sound very important but I stuck with it <laughs>
0: You begin the book by discussing your first words um, about you, about the first time you were to speech for President Eisenhower, sort of as an intro to your life in politics and policy. Um, it, was this, it was in September 1958 during a ceremony um, at Fort Den. forgive me for, for mispronouncing this, but uh, uh, Legionnais in Pennsylvania, a frontier post where George Washington fought in 1758, uh, 200 years earlier. You write humorously that all that survived your draft was one sentence, um, hmm. but actually this wasn't the first time you've written for a public f- figure. Can you describe um, your entry into politics while in college? Well,
1: what happened, uh, Jonathan, was, was I was a student uh, at Johns Hopkins University, which is in Baltimore, so it's only 40 miles uh, away uh, from, from uh, the capital. Uh, and uh, I was writing a paper on something called the Bricker Amendment, which was uh, an effort by the by the Congress to try to limit uh, the the treaty making powers of the president. Uh, and so I thought I would go over there and see if I could search around and get some interesting comments in, around the uh, uh, the Senate uh, for for my for my study little study. Uh, and that it was so different then. I mean you couldn't I can't imagine what that doing uh, now. What I did then was just knock on some congressman's door, or senator's door, say excuse me, I'm a student and I'm interested in that. And in that case, uh, the door I knocked on was Senator Hubert Humphrey of Minnesota. Uh, they immediately put me in, uh, in with his top legislative aide, uh, and uh, he explained to me all of the ins and outs that were going on. In the passage uh, or the, uh, the fight over the Bricker Amendment. was fascinating. And uh, in the course of the conversation, he also asked me what I thought. So there I was, you know, the, 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 the kid telling the, the, the expert what I thought. He thought that was great. And he said, okay, would you write Humphrey's speech? Well, of course, I was absolutely thrilled to write Humphrey's speech, uh, which I did. Uh, nobody of my friends, of course, were going to believe that I wrote Senator Humphrey's speech, so I managed to put my own name into the speech so that I say, "See, there it is i wrote I wrote this speech. So that was the first time uh, I was ever involved in speech writing uh, and for an important uh, person and then years later, uh, for when I became Eisenhower's speechwriter, again, it was a sheer accident. Uh, it was in uh, August of 1958, I had been drafted, drafted, I had been served two years in the Army, and I was coming back on a troop ship from, from Germany, and I was 25, and I was unemployed. Uh, and when I got there uh, to the United States, uh, quite unexpectedly, my mentor, the professor that I had worked most closely with, when I was a student, had just been made, his name was Malcolm Moose, and he had just been made, Eisenhower, teacher, and he asked me uh, uh, to join him. Well, it became a complicated story, but yes, there I was uh, on the staff, and as you pointed out, uh, first writing that uh, uh, little speech uh, in uh gate for uh, uh, Fort Ligonier in, in Pennsylvania.
0: Now, did you, you know, you were writing for you knocked on uh You got a speech writing gig for Hubert Humphrey, a Democrat. Um, Did you, and then you worked for, and then you went to the convention um, in 1952. Did you consider yourself a Republican or a Democrat or just someone who was interested in politics?
1: Oh, absolutely Republican. No, to make it clear, uh, the position of uh, of, uh, Hubert Humphrey and and the other uh, liberal uh, senators, Democratic senators, was in support of Eisenhower uh, and the president. Uh, so there was no inconsistency in that. When I went to the uh, convention in 1952, uh, I was uh, just a, k- a kid. I was working for the New York County Republican Committee, Tom Dewey's organization, uh, and uh, uh, at our uh, White House, I was uh, I was the aide or uh, the number two speechwriter. A man named Moose was uh, who was a, a Minnesota. Republican, and also happened to be a Republican chairman of, of Baltimore, where Johns Hopkins was. So there was no doubt what party I was, I was with. In
0: 1952, you were talking a little bit about how being, you enrolled in uh, Johns Hopkins University, and you mm-hmm. talked a little bit, too, about Professor Malcolm Moose, who was one of the most influential people in your young life. Um, who was he?
1: Oh, he was absolutely uh, in my life. I, how could I ever uh, have, uh, have been at the White House as a speechwriter in the career that I followed uh, had not uh, this professor tapped me on the shoulder and said, uh, come with me? I mean, but, uh, uh, most students certainly... Uh, uh, Certainly, by the time they, they get to a graduate level, have somebody who's a mentor, some professor who really cares of, about them. Moose was the man for me. Uh, he uh, and I was a very good writer, and I did a lot of things to help him. And in the books that he was writing at that time, so it was it was not surprising uh, that he might might want me uh, to 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 be with him. But of course, totally coincidence. That just at the moment that I had come back to the United States was available and he got this job, uh, I could have had n- no way of, of knowing that. So I, I, the book, I really call it uh, uh, the, my, my Moose Miracle, uh, and it did send me on a path that I can't imagine I otherwise would have been on because I went from, uh, from Eisenhower to Nixon to Ford to so forth and so on. Uh, I, was, I was on track.
0: And what was your what was your role under um, Dr. Moose at the White House?
1: Well, uh, it was, you know, today uh, when a president of the United States has eight speechwriters uh, and it's very specialized, we, in a funny way, we had two and a half. There was Mac Moose, there was me, uh, and there was uh, the third, was strangely, was the assistant naval aide, whose name was Ralph Williams. It happened that Mac office was located not in the West Wing but in the East Wing, uh, where the offices of the military aides as well as the First Lady were located. And this assistant uh, naval aide uh wandered in one day and asked if he could be helpful. And it turned out he was a major intellectual uh and uh he was obviously unemployed. Mac, who had not been in the military at all, was thrilled to have somebody who would be a national security uh Expert. So we were the three people, uh, and in fact, it turns out that it was uh, Ralph Williams, uh, the naval aide, who who invented the the famous remark about the uh, of the president of the industrial military complex. So that's that's what we were. We um, all of, we we the three of us worked together, uh, and uh, uh, and Ma- and Mac would then. Presented to the president So it was always initialed uh, As it went to the president, M.M. for Malcolm Moose And strangely, if you go to the White House uh, uh, Eisenhower uh, Library uh, You don't find that many references to S.H. To to, to me uh, and it, went through, it went through Mac But as I have an opportunity uh, To tell in my memoirs I can pick out the, the particular speeches That I wrote, that I liked, that I was proud of That was that Somehow fill filled something. One, for example, in which uh, I invent a word. Uh, well, you know, not many people have an opportunity to invent a word. I thought that was pretty great, and I wanted uh, I wanted it noted, if you will, through my memoir that I had invented a word and some other things uh, that were a bit historical.
0: You know, working here at the Richard Nixon Presidential Library, I've come across uh, you know President Nixon's speeches, some of the research. Um and some of the background behind his his development of his speech um what was it what was it like to craft a speech um for uh for president eisenhower and how how long was he how, how much was he involved in the process
1: Oh, he was very much involved in the process we did not have as many speeches as presidents have now, so that in a funny way. Uh the three of us speech writers were not overly employed uh, that that busy we might have one major speech a week and a minor speech but nothing like uh the constant daily speeches uh that presidents uh, now give um, we would we would give a draft to the president a full draft uh and it would be numbered number 1 uh, and if a president worked on it did anything on it the number became 2 uh, and many of these speeches could go on uh, for ten drafts, and each time uh, the number changed, uh, the president Eisenhower uh, became truly more involved uh, in in the speech. But the funny part about Eisenhower, because many people uh, didn't think highly of him as a speak as a speaker, partly because he was not very effective in in uh, press conferences. Uh, was that he had actually been a speechwriter himself. He had been Douglas MacArthur's speechwriter at one time. He was a very – I thought he was a very good writer. Uh, and many of uh, – I have in the book one one little draft uh, that I did, and he uh, made all of these corrections. And as far as I'm concerned, the corrections were better than the speech themselves. I thought he was he was very good at that.
0: What was it like to work – in terms of size, what was it like to work in the Eisenhower administration versus um, the Nixon administration, um, and even people that you've talked to work, who worked in um, most more recent administrations? Oh
1: yeah, I mean we were we were a a, a modest crew. I mean we, they were it was very small. Uh, when you see what the White House looks like today, it's hard to believe that uh, uh, that there are that many people. I'll give you a, a, a very simple example uh, of of that. <clears throat> we um, there is a staff mess uh, called a mess that's run by the by the Navy, uh, where the staff can have have meals, uh, and it's about oh size of a large dining room maybe it could seat 30 people uh and we could all have uh, uh, lunch there at the same time uh, if if we wanted to um <clears throat> excuse me and and uh, and I was just like anybody else although I was by far the youngest person on the staff there were only two of us at that time who were even in their in their 20s when i came back to uh the white house and uh, the president was now richard nixon it was eight years later uh... and at first uh, there were two seatings. we couldn't all sit down uh... together so that a young person like me would not have had the same opportunity of sitting at the staff table with all of the important people the the, the press secretary and the economics advisor and so forth they would have sat in a second sitting. by the time uh, i left the eisenhower the nixon uh administration. they now not only had two twoCDs but two dining rooms uh so that uh the the most important people were even farther removed from the young uh workers uh, workers like me that was just uh, an example to show uh, how it was i I cite in the book the fact i had uh uh at the in uh, the nixon uh, in the eisenhower uh the nixon uh in the Nixon uh, library, uh, White House, uh, I had a marvelous office, a rather large office, in the West Wing. In the uh, in the Eisenhower White House, I had a very large office in the executive office building, now the Eisenhower Office Building, which had been built to house the State Department, the War Department, and the Navy Department. And those offices were, were, were huge. Uh, I had... Uh, as a young man, I had a a, a conference table in my office that I, you could ten people could have sat down there. In fact, when I'd have a meeting, I would make sure that I had a White House pad in front of each, each place because uh, I wanted each person to have the opportunity to, to steal it if they if they wanted to. But then you read subsequent books. There's a book out by somebody who was a Clinton aide. And I think he was. Seventh speechwriter, and he talks about his office almost like a closed closet. So it was a very different, a very different setup. As I say, my office under Eisenhower was in the executive office building, right next to the White House, across from the White House, and my boss's office was in the East Wing. So every day, I would literally walk right through the White House. If it if it was raining, I would go. Into the through the residence, Uh, if it was not raining, I'd walk along an archway on on the other side. Uh, And you know, in all those years, I was there more than two years. uh, I don't remember that anybody asked for my identification. In
0: 1960, um, the chief of staff, Jerry Parsons, appointed you to guide the work of the RNC platform Um, during the campaign of that year between Senator John F. Kennedy and Vice President Nixon uh what did your work entail in uh,
1: in 19 uh 60 uh I was at the at the white house I was assigned the responsibility to uh to be the liaison to the republican platform the platform uh was not an eisenhower platform it would be a Nixon platform uh, uh but there was always a concern uh that um, maybe Something that we cared about would be overlooked. So, one of the things I did was write a very long document uh, on the achievements of the Eisenhower administration, which subsequently became important in the Eisenhower story because it became the basic document uh, of uh, his last State of the Union message. Uh, but beyond that, uh, at the convention, the platform committee, uh, we were we we had finished our job and were waiting for it to be typed up uh, and to be presented the next morning uh, to the full platform committee for approval. Uh, when the phone rang, uh, Chuck Percy, who was the chairman of the platform committee, picked up the phone. It was clear that something important uh, was happening, and it was uh, Richard Nixon, vice president of the United States, had flown uh, to uh, to New York. To meet with Nelson Rockefeller, the governor of New York, uh, and on the in the on that phone conversation, uh, they were outlining what they wanted uh, to be in the in the platform, while we took notes at the other at the other end. I should say something funny happened when it got to be twelve o'clock. Uh, the switchboard operator pulled the plug and and went home. And we, we had to get reconnected to continue uh, this conversation that went on for several hours. Okay, uh, the point was that uh, the committee was very upset uh, by the intercession, particularly of Rockefeller, uh, who was more liberal than the, co- than the committee was, and there was a real revolution uh, going on there. Nixon had to go out to uh, uh, to Chicago to to, to quell the uh, unhappy delegates. Uh, 36 hours later uh, at all uh, for, for my little story as part of the bit player was that it was another example uh, where I was, I was there uh, overlook, over, uh, over, not overseen because I wasn't seen it, uh, but uh, there while important moments of history were played out.
0: And what was the difference between in 1960? Was there any difference between the Eisenhower uh, platform um, and the Nixon 1960 platform?
1: The strange part is that there wasn't, uh, but it was it was the um, it had to do with the way it was presented. Uh, That made all the difference. It was it looked as if Nixon was going. Begging to Eisenhower, I mean, going begging uh, to um, to Rockefeller. Uh, the document was uh, was presented in 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 that way, uh, and uh, stylistically, there was some there was some real problems uh, for for Nixon in the presentation of of that document. And in fact, there actually were not very many significant changes.
0: You hadn't met. Richard Nixon throughout the administration, um, the Eisenhower administration. When when was the first time you met him?
1: Yeah, this is very peculiar because after all uh, I was on the White House staff of the Eisenhower-Nixon administration and yet the Vice President did not have an office at the White House. That did not happen until Jimmy Carter's uh, Vice President Walter Mondale had an office there not only that but uh, Eisenhower had a had a, a view of the vice presidency that now seems very old fashioned but he write, makes it very clear in his own memoir that he considered the vice president the, who who led the, the senate with the president uh, as a, a member of the of the legislative branch uh... he he was actually his office was on capitol hill uh, he was paid by the by the senate budget uh, as was his staff uh... and he really only came over to the white house uh... for events like uh, the cabinet meetings the national security council meeting so that i didn't see him i didn't really know him until after the administration uh... and what happened at that point was that um... Uh, I went to visit him probably in April of uh, 1961, and he he had now gone to California. He worked for a large firm, uh, law firm. He was in a sense their rainmaker. And in, in, in those days, these large firms outside of outside of uh, Washington didn't even have a Washington office. So he came in. Uh, and used uh Bill Rogers his friend who was the attorney general used uh, an office uh, in in his uh in his offices uh and invited me uh to to meet him so that really was the first i was going to uh, he wanted me uh to do some work for him to write uh, to help him on on um uh articles he was writing for, for the Saturday Evening post uh for a newspaper series he was doing for the los angeles Times and he was inviting me uh, to uh, to assist him on those jobs. So that's the first time uh, I I met him.
0: And what were your what were your impressions of him at the time?
1: Well, Nixon from then and very often after that uh, was very different than the sort of Nixon who I would have known through the media, particularly through the cartoons. Uh, of of her block, uh, uh, for example, uh, this would be right in the beginning. What happened when I left the the, the White House, uh, the the Eisenhower White House? I now was was sent unemployed again, uh, and Bryce Harlow, who was a uh, was on the Eisenhower staff. It was now the uh, representative of the Procter Gamble Company in Washington and was really the go-to man for all things Republican in Washington at that time. He came to me, and uh, Eisenhower had gone back to, to Gettysburg, to his home. At that time, this is totally different from today, the former president did not have a security staff, did not have office space, uh, did not have uh, cars and and all of the other perks that today's former presidents have. He got in his old Chrysler Imperial. He drove the 80 miles back to to Gettysburg. There was one uh, Secret Service car trailing him. Uh, When they got to Gettysburg, the Secret Service car turned around and went back to Washington, and there was Eisenhower, in a sense, all alone. Gettysburg College gave him some space so he could write his memoirs. But at any rate, uh, Bryce Harlow called me in and said if the Republican Party uh, can, she, the Republican Party should uh, keep Eisenhower alive politically for our purposes, if we did do that, somebody has to answer his mail. Uh, would you be willing to answer his mail? I said, sure. None of us had any idea how much mail there would be. So we worked out a simple deal, piecework. I would get $3 for every letter and so forth. Uh, I hired one of Mamie Eisenhower's secretaries, Ann Parson. I got some office space in a PR, Republican PR firm in Washington. Uh, I wrote a little book of Q&A, here are the questions uh, that we were likely to be asked How, what does Eisenhower uh, think about uh, uh, the, a volunteer draft and so forth, the answers and so forth gave it to Parsons uh, and, and she basically did all the work and we got $3 for every letter we sent out and what we didn't realize was that Eisenhower was probably the most loved man in the world there were, was the, 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 there was a torrent of letters and I made, was making a lot of money uh, and I thought maybe I should do some other things uh, for, for, as, as uh, I took the Eisenhower job, if you will Bryce Harlow said, well, you know, be helpful to, to Nixon as well, he's going back to California, he has nobody in, in, uh, in Washington to help him out, I said sure, I didn't know what that meant but I said sure, uh, so over time uh, I did two things in a sense for my client Eisenhower at Nixon, one wherever I would see uh, a newspaper article or something about a person who I knew Eisenhower or Nixon, uh, somebody who was getting married, somebody who had won an uh, award, somebody uh, whose who, uh, daughter uh, was honored in some way, I would draft a little letter and send it to Eisenhower at Gettysburg, to Nixon in Los Angeles. And I should say uh, that after a while in, in Washington, I got all, all sorts of people. So, oh, I got the nicest little note from the general Eisenhower L- wanted to be called the general after he left the presidency. Uh, but I, I didn't know how this was appealing uh, to, to Nixon. The other thing uh, I did uh, was uh, I would send them uh, some notes of what things that were going on in Washington, uh that they might not know it in that way it was sort of a newsletter with an audience of two. Uh well when I got uh, to Bill Rogers' office to meet uh Nixon for the first time, it was clear that he liked this newsletter a lot. Uh because uh, like uh, he had been in Washington uh since he the end of World War two and, and and he was elected to the House of Representatives and and that was the gossip of Washington. Now the gossip of Los Angeles was totally different. And in fact, he once said to me uh, uh, later, he said, you know, if I have to play golf one more time with Randy Scott, remember the old cowboy movie star, Randy Scott? I think I'll go out of my mind. So he loved the little notes about what was going on in Washington. But he also said to me at that same meeting, uh, don't don't bother to send me the, those those congratulatory notes. I don't want to be remembered as someone who remembers people's birthday. Well, I was sort of shocked by this because the original ticket, 1952 ticket, was Eisenhower, the non-politician, uh, and Nixon, the 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 senator from California, as the politician. And here was Eisenhower, who did all the things that a politician should be doing. Love these little notes, uh, and Nixon, the politician, who who asked me not to send them, so think, that that was all off the way it was with Nixon things I thought I knew about him weren't the fact- those facts at all uh, so um uh, but I will say uh that uh i uh, I loved writing for for nixon. It was a one on one arrangement with Eisenhower. Uh, as I described it uh everything I did at the White House really went through Malcolm Moose so that uh, I was fortunate enough to have a lot of my words used, but I wasn't in the process in the same way as when Dick Nixon and I wrote an article for the Saturday New Post. There was something else as I was learning things about Richard Nixon. Saturday New Post, they might pay a Richard Nixon ten thousand dollars for for a. Article, which might be the equivalent of fifty thousand dollars today, and if I had done the same article on my own, I maybe I would have gotten a thousand dollars. Well, Nixon was incredibly generous. He would often split the fee with me, and I remember once saying to uh, Dick, "You're you're paying me too much," and he was embarrassed and said, "Oh, oh no, I just have to give it to the IRS." We never had a contract; we just dealt with each other. So again, Nixon had a reputation uh, in some circles as being cheap. But boy, he wasn't cheap with the way he dealt with me. So again, uh, that was the sort of thing. And, and then, of course, uh, what ultimately happened pretty quickly was he decided to run uh, for, for governor of California. And at that point, I went to California and was pretty involved uh, with the campaign.
0: In, for the California campaign, how did, he, how did he ask you to join him? And what, what, Did you think he could win?
1: I had no reason to think otherwise. Uh, what had happened was he. my first experience with that, he had a meeting at the Waldorf in New York where he had some of the people who were his big contributors and, and political supporters from the 660 campaign. This would be in 1961. And he was, was exploring with them whether he should run for governor of California in 1962. Uh, they were all very anxious for him to run, uh, and of course it was also quite clear that they knew very little about about California uh, uh, politics. Uh, they were they they simply had sort of two data points. One was that he had won California when he ran for president. So clearly, if he ran one running for president, he should be able to run running for governor. Uh, and the second that the polls at the time. Uh, showed that he was ahead of uh, of Pat Brown, the, the incumbent governor, uh, and their desire for him to win was that you you would have to be somehow connected politically in 1962 in order to be a candidate for president in 1964, and that's really all these people were interested in. Uh, there was there was no uh, place to show; there was just win. And he had to get in line to win in 1964. Um, He needed them. Uh, There were already already people lined up uh, to run, like uh, George uh, Romney and and, uh, Nelson Rockefeller, maybe Bill Scranton. Uh, And Nixon was the only one who wasn't a multimillionaire. And so he needed financial support, uh, even for the modest little operation he had then going in California, a little research and, and secretarial operation. He, he, he couldn't do it out of his own pocket. His pockets were very, very deep. So he needed these people. He listened to these people. But he knew something that he couldn't share with them. And that was, if he ran for president in 1964 against Kennedy, he was going to lose. He couldn't tell them that. But that was the fact that incumbent presidents usually got a second term. It's very rare that they didn't. And if he could not beat Kennedy when he had all the advantage as vice president in 1960, he wasn't going to beat him when Kennedy was now president in 1964. At any rate, based on uh, this advice and and where he was coming from, uh, he held a press conference in Los Angeles and announced that he was going to run for governor of California in 1962, but would not run for president of the United States in 1964. Uh, the, obviously, the hidden message was, uh, as governor of California, uh, he, he, he had a commitment to serve the people of California, and while all those national people would come to him and say, we want you, he could say, oh, I'm very sorry, but I made a, made a commitment. So that's roughly where he was. Now, of much more importance Than that, and of course, it's even in his his memoirs, uh, R.N. uh, Was he didn't want to be governor of California. His whole his his whole time in public service at that time had been largely devoted to international affairs, and he was fascinated always by international affairs. And he didn't really take the same excitement uh from the issues of education and, and uh taxes and uh environment that were the issues that a governor runs. So it really was a, a serious mistake uh for him to do that and he never really caught on to it and showed it. You know, his his big issue when he ran for governor had to do with uh communist in higher education, which was not a major Issue in in, in California, but that's something he knew about otherwise, and that's something he used when he ran for governor.
0: What was the campaign like to work on specifically? um, Specifically, your role. Um, You had mentioned you had mentioned going on a dramatic whistle stop uh, with the president or the future president and future first lady. Uh, Could you describe your experience on the campaign? Well, first of
1: all, California. It was uh, running for governor. Was a lot more hectic, frankly, than running for president. Uh, you, you, you. It, it was. I, I compared it to the difference from being in the in the first class in your plane from Los Angeles to to Washington, uh, or back in coach. Uh, you didn't. You, you didn't have a big staff around you. Uh, you didn't have. Uh, you, you. You didn't control your your schedule in the same way when you were governor when you were governor when you ready for governor when you were ready for governor you woke up in los angeles maybe you had a, a breakfast meeting raising money or something you went off to san francisco for a luncheon speech you then went on to san diego for a dinner rally you then returned to, to, to los angeles to go to sleep now that was a hell of a schedule and with Richard Nixon, that's how it was. It, 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 Nixon was going to be in every county. Uh, he was going to shake hundreds of hands, uh, and um, uh, it, and he got huge crowds doing this, and he thought he was doing fine, but he wasn't doing fine. I mean, the people who would come out uh, were coming out for half of the to see half of the sort of Kennedy-Nixon tag team. They were out looking for a celebrity, not for a California politician, and so we were always fooled by the size of of his crowds uh, during during this period. There, for me, of course, uh, some very exciting moments, uh, learning experiences, and, and otherwise. There was a uh, whistle uh, a whistle stop uh, train uh, campaign that went uh, down the the uh, uh, the state from from uh, San Francisco to San Diego, which was you know stopping every few minutes in another town, making another speech and so forth, which was you know great fun. Uh, there was also a telethon sort of experience that we We had seven different nights in which you were in uh, San Francisco or Los Angeles or wherever uh and you were taking calls from the audience uh and you had celebrities who would then get the the uh, the calls and and read them off and hit the president and the candidate would answer them and that was quite a you know evening's entertainment so these were t- two terribly entertaining parts uh of being on his staff uh my part was sometimes a little odd. Uh, the questions that would come in from the audience didn't go right to the movie stars who were reading it. They went to me, and my job was to make them tougher. A typical question from a, from a, a person sitting by the telephone is something might be, like, "What do you think about communism?" And I would turn it into something like, "Why do the communists hate you?") <laughs> And then the, the, uh, the uh, movie star would say, hey, here's a tough one, Dick. Why do the communists say, oh, well, it was the same question, basically, but it was easier to do. And the funny part about it is uh, it was that same role uh, was, was Pat Buchanan's role uh, when uh, Nixon then uh, ran, ran for, for president in, in 1968.
0: You had mentioned um, in your book you talk a little bit about a gentleman named Paul Keyes. Um, mm-hmm. You talk about how Roger Ailes often gets credit for his influence, um, specifically on uh, television communications in the nineteen sixty-eight mm-hmm. campaign. But mm-hmm. uh, President Nixon knew a uh, often overlooked writer, comedian, mm-hmm. producer of the show Laughing, named Paul Keys, and it was interesting because I was looking I was looking here at the at uh, the Nixon Presidential Library through the through the archives of um through the through the collection on President Nixon's inaugural speech and uh i found that uh um mr keys was actually um contributed to some of the the thought and research behind uh behind the inaugural as well who who mm-hmm. was this man and how did um how did he influence yeah. president nixon yeah he was
1: very close he ultimately became very close uh to uh, the president uh, uh nixon uh what happened was uh, nixon had gone on the, the jack Parr... Tonight Show uh, at one point, and uh, and Paul Keyes was the writer for the show. He essentially was a gag writer. Uh, and for some reason, the two of them just hit it off, which was very unusual for, for, for Nixon. Most of his friends were of vintage. He had known them for many years and so forth. But there was an immediate spark uh, between uh, the, the, the two of them. Uh, and it was very good for, for Dick Nixon because Keys uh, uh, was an engaging guy, uh, and um, uh, and he was fascinated by politics. And he did often contribute things for uh, uh, for Nixon. Uh, for uh, uh, we talked about the uh, the telethon. Uh, he would listen to the telethons. He'd take notes on the telethons. He'd tell Nixon what he should have been saying, how he could have said it, and that sort of thing. So uh, he turned out to he, he was he was not he did not play uh, sort of the Shakespearean fool. He didn't. Know he uh, who was uh, uh, looking odd and and whispering in the president's ear. Uh, he was just a good uh, even though he was a gag writer. Uh, but occasionally he did write jokes for. For Nixon, and for other for other people in the Nixon entourage, uh, but he, he was a, he was a joy to have around, and uh, and he certainly taught me a lot about uh, about gag writing. I didn't write, uh, tended not to write jokes for Nixon, but I did write uh, some for Gerald Ford, definitely uh, based on what I had learned uh, from Paul Keyes.
0: Why do you think Richard Nixon lost in nineteen sixty two?
1: You know, Nixon underestimated Pat Brown. Pat Brown could be a little bumbling, uh, not very uh, attractive as a speaker, and so forth. Uh, But what became clear was he was a very good governor, he did the things that people wanted. Uh, and uh, Nixon was off on another uh, another cloud sometimes. Funny thing happened in that. There was only one debate between the two of them. It was sponsored by United Press International. It was in San Francisco. And Nixon sent me ahead to San Francisco to draft what I thought Pat Brown would say. Each one had an opening statement seven minutes. And I was to go to to, to San Francisco ahead of the, the Nixon party and draft Pat Brown's seven minutes so that when, when Nixon got there, he would, he would, I would give it to him and he would not be surprised. The thing I did was I immediately called to our chief researcher in Los Angeles, his name was Agnes Waldron, and I said, bundle up all of Pat Brown's speeches and, and get them to me. Uh, and what I was going to do was go through them and write a speech based on what he had already said. That's what I would have done if I had been writing Nixon's speech, so I would do it that way. So I wrote this speech. Nixon read it the next day it went on the air, and of course, Pat Brown said exactly what I had written that he was saying, and Nixon thought this was marvelous, thought I was a real genius. I never told him how I got there, but at any rate uh, uh, um that speech showed all of the things in terms of the school districts, water, sub- and so forth, taxes uh, that that Pat Brown had done. It was a good record, uh, and that combined with the fact uh, that Nixon already had a divided Re- Republican Party. What had happened was in the primary uh, in June, I guess, he ran against a man named Shell. Who was the minority leader of the the assembly? He 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 was he had a lot of money. He had oil money. He had been a football big football star at, at Southern California, uh, and um, the issue was the John Birch Society. The John Birch Society was a very right wing society, uh, in which uh, uh, the the head of it, uh, Robert Welch, had said that. Uh, Uh, Eisenhower was some sort of a communist, Uh, and Nixon was terribly upset by this and said that, uh, of course, he was against the John Birch Society, uh, but also he was against any Republican candidate who accepted the support of the John Birch Society, which included some friends of his, good friends of his, who were members of the House of Representatives, who came from very Republican districts. Uh, who Nixon turned against in that uh, in uh, in that way, and he lost some votes. It was clear uh that he was going to get the nomination for the republican nominee for to be the republican candidate uh but Shell would get a third of the vote now to lose a third of the of your own vote is a big deal, so he started with that behind him and I can remember once that that he was in his office uh downtown. Uh, Los Angeles. Uh, during that primary period, uh, we were going out to dinner. Uh, he was sh- he was shaving in a, uh, a private bathroom that was connected to his office. The door was open, uh, and he was looking in the mirror. and He, and he said to me, um, "I could not look at the, the face in my face if if I didn't oppose them." And at first, I thought, "Gee, is he just?" Saying something for my purposes. And then I said, No, no, that can't be. There's no reason to win me over. He's saying something to himself. And I think he felt so deeply about the attack on Eisenhower that he took this position. In fact, Ronald Reagan, when he ran to governor in 1966, also opposed uh the john Birch Society but he was a much better politician than Richard Nixon and he let every republican candidate do what they wanted to do uh, and didn't lose anybody else in in, in that regard so that all, was all part of why uh Richard Nixon lost the governorship
0: after he lost the governorship um you you devote a a subsection of the Nixon chapter on um bookmaking book writing um Mm-hmm. at a very young age you're already a prolific author um throughout your co- career you've written um a dozen a dozen or so books um mm-hmm. can you do how did you how did you um become a an author at such a young age and specifically can you talk a little bit about um your biography uh, nixon a political portrait
1: yeah well I, um, writing books is what i wanted to do I, not being a speechwriter, not even being an age a president i wanted to write books. And as soon as I had enough money to put aside that I could test myself, that I could spend a few years feeding my family and so forth, but not having to worry uh, about the, the rent, uh, I would do that. And in part, uh, with the money I made doing the Eisenhower letters, as I've described, uh, as well as the, the Nixon speeches, uh, I decided I would go out and, and write some books, um, and see uh, my success. Uh, and you know, some of the books did pretty, pretty well. Uh, I wrote a big book called America's Political Dynasties, uh, which had a unusual history. When I was in the army stationed in Germany, uh, I went over to the USIA library one night in Frankfurt to find a a book about the Civil War, and I found a great big fat book called The Biographical Directory of the American Congress. Everybody uh, who had been in Congress in 1774 had a little biography, and it was weighed about seven pounds. And I went through, just skimming through the book, I found all these names that went on and on and on, Freelinkheisen, 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 generation after generation, typically. I didn't know anything about them. I'd been a political science major. I'd gone to a good university and all of that. I knew about the Roosevelts. I knew about uh, uh, the, the Harrises and the, and the Adamses. But all these names, who were generation after generation in the House of Representatives and the Senate and governors, I didn't know. So I, I was bored. It was a peacetime army. When I wasn't on guard duty, I would go and, and write little geographical geological, <laughs> geographical charts. And when I left the Army, I had about 300 of these. And I said, okay, someday maybe I could write a book about this. Uh, and uh, by the time I started the book, another family came along that really captured people's imagination, named the the, the Kennedys. Uh, so there was a market uh, for this book, and I wrote this huge book 700 pages called America's Political Dynasties from the Adamses to the, the Kennedys. So, you know, I, I, I was now in the book business. I, my son said that I was a bookmaker. Uh, and um, one of the books, Earl Mazo, who was the, the chief political correspondent of the New York uh, Herald Tribune, the Republican leading paper in, in New York City, uh, had written in uh, 1959. A very good and, and successful biography of of Richard Nixon um, in nineteen sixty seven there were reasons that he was not in a position to revise it. so he, he was a friend of mine. we had the same publisher, and I agreed to revise that book. so it became uh, uh, Richard Nixon uh, by Bezos and Hess. Um, and uh, it had some unusual things in it uh, uh, that were not necessarily in, the, in, in, in history otherwise. One of uh, the questions of, uh, of Eisenhower uh, was why he didn't campaign more vigorously for Nixon in 1960. We, as the speechwriters, Moose and Hess, thought he would. We were very busy writing speeches for him to give, and the call never came. What happened, on notes note to us and to the rest of the world, was that Mamie Eisenhower and the president's doctor had asked Nixon secretly if he would he would not accept uh, uh, Eisenhower's uh, offer to do all these speeches because they feared for Eisenhower's health. Uh, Eisenhower was very hurt by this, by the way. He, 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 was very, he did not like Kennedy. He was very anxious for Nixon to be elected, but he was told, uh, no, Nixon no, didn't, didn't want him. And actually, he gave a few speeches at the end of the campaign, which were very powerful. Uh, but at any rate, uh, Earl Mazo then went in the campaign of 96, after the campaign, to two to places, to Chicago, uh, Illinois, uh, and to Texas, to investigate what had happened in, during that election. And he found huge fraud, Democratic fraud, in both places. And was quite convinced, and felt he had the evidence uh, that, that Nixon was, should have been the president, and it was stolen from him. And he was to do. And he decided to do a 12-part series on this, and he started the series, and he got a call from, from, uh, from Nixon. And, and Nixon came over and he said to him, "That's a very interesting series you're doing, but I'd like you to stop." That no one steals the presidency. There must be a powerful president as, we, as he negotiates the American position around the world. And Meza was stunned by this, absolutely stunned by it. But of course, Nixon had asked for it, and he stopped it. This subsequently was in the book that we wrote that was published in 1968 uh, and was a news story. I mean, the Chicago Tribune had a 1,200 word editorial uh, on what Nixon. Uh, had had done uh, the London Times had a big story that said didn 't Kennedy steal the election so uh our our book was a little more than the standard uh political biography. Oh was another interesting thing about it funny thing uh, we had nothing to do with the cover as you'd never do with a with a book. It had a very strong uh, uh, drawing sort of a uh, Great graven drawing of uh, of Nixon. And what we didn't know until for other reasons after the campaign was that Bob Haldeman and Rosemary Woods hated that drawing. They didn't want uh, people to get off an airplane and see shelves of the horrible mean drawing of Richard Nixon. And they had a lot of the books destroyed, (laughs) which we found out later.
0: Now you talked about how you always wanted to become an author, and this is a period of time that uh, gave you the opportunity to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, in 1969, you were called back into the Nixon administration. Um, mm-hmm. How did you switch from being a writer, speechwriter, um, to a policy uh, to a policy person um, under Daniel Patrick Moynihan? Um, well what
1: happened I, I was in the campaign the uh, 68 campaign uh because uh, Spiro Agnew said a lot of very odd things gaffes if you will uh and I was at at, at Harvard and and uh, I got a call from Bob Haldeman and he said the you know the boss are at once you are on the plane uh with um, uh, with Agnew the vice presidential candidate uh and so I did go and we traveled 60,000 miles it was not a it was, it was not a good relationship between us uh but nevertheless i had done uh, i had paid my dues uh and then felt that i was entitled to a job in the administration if i wanted one i did not actually want to go back to the white house i had a wonderful experience there and i thought it'd be fun to have another type of experience at any rate daniel patrick Moynihan, who i i knew at harvard was a dear dear friend of mine uh uh We didn't agree he was a big Democrat. I was not. But at any rate, uh, in November, uh, in the transition period, he called me from Cambridge saying that the president-elect, Richard Nixon, had called him. He was going to be offering him a job at uh, the—Nixon was uh, headquartered at the Hotel Pierre in New York. Uh, Moynihan was going down there to find out what what this was all about uh, and asked me if I would go up from Washington and be— meet him there after he had seen uh, uh, Nixon. So I did. He came out of the meeting. He was, he was absolutely thrilled. He, would be, he was being offered what was the equivalent of the, the job in national security uh, that Henry Kissinger would get. That would be the job he would have in domestic uh, affairs. And this was, of course, exactly the job he dreamed of, <laughs> although not for this particular President, uh, and he asked me if I would join him at the White House, and what became by title the Deputy Assistant to the President for Urban Affairs. Well, there were two reasons uh, that I w- knew I was going to accept. One, to, to to work with Pat Moynihan would be and was a joy. He was fun. He was a brilliant. He was uh, he was always interesting. So there was that. And secondly. I thought he needed me. After all, I was the only Republican he knew. So I joined him, uh, and uh, uh, he served two years, which was the time that he he had a uh, leave from from Harvard and then would go back to Harvard. Uh, Henry Kissinger decided to stay on, and so he, he left Harvard uh, after two years. Uh, and uh, I stayed... Uh, with Pat for that for that first year and then went on to other assignments uh that I was given by the president uh until finally in January uh, 1972 so, uh, uh, I I went to the Brookings Institution so I was involved in the in the Nixon administration for its first term
0: you had mentioned that this was Daniel Patrick Moynihan's dream job to uh, mm-hmm. to be a part of you know be the urban affairs uh, director, the, the equivalent to Dr. Kissinger on domestic affairs, mm-hmm. uh, and you talked about being his deputy. What what what, what were the two of you um, wanting to accomplish during that uh, during that time well, at the Urban well, Affairs well, Council?
1: Uh, he he it was very interesting. There was a one major piece of legislation. There were lots of things that 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 he did that were, were useful, but the thing that he really cared about was something that became known as the Family Assistance Plan, which was a, a, a design uh, to, to give money uh, to poor people uh, who have, who families that had, had children. Uh, and I wrote about this in another little book called The Professor and the President, Daniel Patrick Moynihan in the Nixon uh, White House. And in some ways, it, it, it may be my best book. Um, what... Happened was that Pat, being given this dream job, uh, got there, and a day after the administration started, uh, another person of higher rank was given the same dream job, and his name was Arthur Burns, uh, who was an old friend of the president, and uh, and he was a professor uh, at Columbia. So in a funny way. This fierce fight, this fair fight over the urban affairs counts, over the uh, uh, the family assistance plan, was fought out between two Ivy League professors: uh, the sociologist uh, Moynihan of of Harvard and the economist Burns of of Columbia. and And this is the story I tell in this little book. Which place? within the West Wing of the White House. The, one, the, the the thing that made this book work was that on the one hand, I certainly knew everything that Moynihan was thinking and doing, because I was his assistant. I was in the office sitting next to him. But Arthur Burns, it turned out, I found when I started to write the book, kept diaries. Uh, they, they, they looked almost like the little... Boy, uh, Books you can buy in the, in the pharmacy for your kids as they go off to first grade. They were little line things. And he, and these, and I found these, I think, in the Michigan State Library, and these were not for publication. They had not been cleaned up. Burns said awful things about everybody. So here I was writing this book where I now knew what both sides were thinking. Uh, and on top of that, the winner turned out to be not the conservative Burns, but the liberal Moynihan. And that is an interesting story in, in itself, because uh, the the relationship between Nixon and Moynihan became very dear and very close. And right from the beginning, right be- even before Nixon was inaugurated during the transition, uh, Pat started to write him memos, long memos about things that they should be doing. And these were not the memos that presidents re- usually receive. These were deeply intellectual Moynihan, uh, 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 memos. And Nixon was thrilled. He had never been treated like an intellectual before, and he certainly felt to himself that he was one. So they got off to this quite wonderful start where uh, Pat even recommended books as he was asked to, and, uh, and Dick Nixon, who was a great reader, would be writing, reading the books that Moynihan uh, represented. So, so it, was, it was a very special relationship. Uh, and um, beside the family assistance plan, which ultimately was defeated by one vote in, in, in the Senate after passing the House, there were a lot of other things, in, including uh, most of Dixon's quite remarkable record in creating uh, environmental protection. Uh, had at least uh, uh, some history uh, from uh, from Pat Wy.
0: could you talk a little bit about your subsequent assignment um, as a uh, director of the White House Conference on children and youth? Um, what mission were you charged with? yeah, that? yeah, yeah, this is
1: okay the uh, it was now uh, it, it Nixon. Had given the big speech, which was the family assistance Plan, and what else he planned to do in, uh, in August of nineteen sixty nine uh, and he would reorganize uh the White House staff, clearly, neither burns nor Moynihan were the sort of people who were needed most needed at that time to put legislation through Congress and so forth <clears throat> so there's a, there'd be a reorganization uh, and the reorganization uh, Both of their jobs, in a sense, were given to John Ehrlichman. Uh, So uh, uh, Pat Moynihan became, became a cabinet minister without portfolio, which fitted his needs very well. He was happy about it. And Arthur Burns was made the chairman of the Federal Reserve, which is exactly why he wanted to be in government in the first place. But what to do with Hess? This is a real problem for them. Uh, I was not going to stay at the White House. I knew that. Uh, uh, so they call, so the president called me into the Oval Office to tell me what he wanted me to do, and what he said in effect was that Bob Fidge, who was the Secretary of HEW, Health, Education, and Welfare, was not doing the job appropriately or well, and he said this in a, in a, in a most sad state. Bob Fitch was really probably the only one in the cabinet that Richard Nixon loved. He had been his campaign manager in 1960. He would like to have had him as his vice presidential uh, uh, associate in 1968 for other reasons. He couldn't have him. Uh, And he told me, would I go over there and see if I could straighten things out? And it was one of those historic moment that you see as sort of movies or something where you say, yes, Mr. President, you walk outside the door and you say, how the hell am I going to do that? I can't just go over and tell Bob Finch, who was a good friend of mine, by the way, that, that, and he's failed by the president as the president sees it. So we sort of circled around each other for a, for a little while, and then he said to me, would I, it would just be a year's assignment, but would I be the national chairman of the White House Conference on Children and Youth, which was a, a something that had been created by Theodore Roosevelt and was convened every 10 years. And it was a year behind and they hadn't even chosen a chairman. Would I do it? it was, when you think about it, it was a terrible job. What was I doing in the midst of a Vietnam War being the, sort of the liaison to America's youth? But I said, yes, I would. And then when I got there and I started to figure out what was involved, I went back to the president and I said, Mr. President, you—you, you, it's not possible to have a successful conference at this time for both children and youth. Clearly, the youth part is going to dominate it, and yet the children's part is so important to us. We we, we can't let that go. I, I propose that we have two conferences, 1970. We would have one on children, Nineteen 71, we'd have one on youth. He said, okay. So this simple job for one year was now two jobs, two years, two jobs. Uh, and a fair amount of my book, Bit Player, is about my maneuvering and my efforts to have two successful conferences.
0: The third chapter of your, uh, of your book, you devote to your time at, um, at the Brookings uh, Institution, mm-hmm. Um it's interesting how, how did you settle into life there you know you're you're a uh, a person from the Nixon White House and in a place that's probably full of uh people from the opposite party the Democratic party uh many of them who have uh PhDs how do, also this is in the uh in the thick of uh in the thick of uh Watergate could you give mm-hmm. us? Could you give us? So a... it was
1: before it was before Watergate. Watergate uh, happened. uh became a very serious question for me. But but my going uh, to to Brookings, uh, of course, had nothing to do with Watergate. Watergate hadn't happened yet. Right. But you're you're absolutely right. What was I doing at the Brookings Institution? And the, the irony of it, it's the place I always wanted to be. It was the think tank that had the sort of interesting serious people that I wanted as, as, as colleagues um, the 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 fact that they were all PhDs and I I had nothing I just gotten out of the uh, army with a bachelor's degree and suddenly been swept up in in, in presidential politics was a great di- uh, liability and in some ways I tried to make up for that by by writing these books, these big serious books, which I hoped were the equivalent somehow of, of of a PhD, at least in the minds of people who would have to make that decision. Um, the other thing, several things that happened at Brookings itself. <clears throat> um, the 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 head of Brookings had become a uh, a man who. Um, had come out of the Kennedy, the the Kennedy Johnson administration. Uh, And he brought with him a lot of, of his people uh, for when Nixon uh, became president, he, in a sense, uh, gave them a spot. So at this point, the book was becoming um, left of center. Uh, where actually uh, in the in the Roosevelt New deal and fair deal period it was it was it was right of set of people that perhaps uh realized that uh but at any rate uh Kermit Gordon was his name and suddenly um the, the sorts of books that i w- was writing which were not theoretical but they they tended to be books on how to make government better were really the sorts of things that, that, that Brookings wanted to be doing under Kermit Gordon. And the second thing, the fact that I was Republican, he didn't say this, but it was really sort of attractive to him. It was a way of sort of balancing the ledger. Oh, yeah, we're on the, uh, on the left, but we're big enough that we could take somebody like Hess from the, from the right. So I suddenly fitted there, and it's been my life for over 40 years, I've loved.
0: Outside the administration, um, what was your perspective on the um, the last days of the the second administration of the Nixon presidency and the sort of the last Watergate. days, Watergate? Now we can say it, Watergate,
1: yeah. Um, okay, uh, Nixon was a friend of mine, uh, sometimes a troubled friend, but that was often the way uh, it was. In fact, when I wrote The Professor and the President... Um, the first words in the book, if I remember, were, I am the only person, perhaps in the world, who was a friend of both Richard Nixon and Daniel Patrick Moynihan before they knew each other. So along comes Watergate, and I knew where I wanted to be. I mean, I was on Nixon's side. And the big question was, did he know? And remember, we didn't know that. Now it's obvious, of course, we know all these things. But at that that time, it wasn't until they suddenly discovered that there were tapes, and the tapes were exposed, that we 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 knew what happened. And I, I remember, I even gave a speech um, at the Harvard Business School, in which I outlined all the ways that I believed that Nixon as president, could not have known uh, of Watergate and the the horrors that became known as, as Watergate. Now, when the tapes came out, of course, I was dead wrong on all of Nixon did know that. Um, it happened when the hearings, this, uh, well, the Irving Committee hearings in, in the Senate, uh, were televised, uh, and the nation was engaged, deeply engaged in them. And beside the three broadcast networks, PBS, the public network, uh, put together a team of Robin McNeil and Jim Lehrer uh, to play, to, to sit through live the live hearings. Uh, And then there were two sort of side men. There was a, a lawyer on one side of them who talked about the legal things and kept changing. It wasn't always the same one. And then on the other side of them was me, and I handled the political parts of what was going on. So I was sitting in a studio listening intently to all of these people who I knew. Some of them were my friends. And they were saying horrible things. I thought, and of course, they ultimately went to prison. And I was getting, hey, I, I, I got nightmares. And and finally, I said on the air, "I'm not coming back tomorrow. This is it. I can't stand this." Uh, and that's all in the book. What, what I said uh, at, at that. What worried me over time was that it was sort of a, a nixonian web, and how did it encase all of these. People who, by the way, came from middle and upper middle class homes who went to elite universities like the University of Southern California and uh, and Brown and Williams and so forth. And I read all of their memoirs at this point and all that they wrote. I knew them and I tried. And there were different reasons. I mean, it was clear that Bob Haldeman was the true believer, he had been with them. Forever and and whatever he did was going to be the right thing to do. In fact, there's a very moving book by Bob Haldeman's widow that shows the degree that, that she worried that Haldeman was just to separate from from their lives because Nixon had taken over. There were others, uh, Colson, Charles Colson, who eventually got religion and quite a quite an important life, but he was ruthless. He was a mean, ruthless man, and his getting moving into the inner Nixon's inner circle was very dangerous for all concerned. There were others who were young people who were, did things because the, the president of the United States, the, the, national, the head of our commander in chief, told them to do it, do them, and maybe they did something because they were just stupid people. I mean, the, the saddest part was a young man, the Ego Bud Crow, who ultimately headed what was known as the Plumbers, who broke into David Ellsberg's, Dan Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office and went to prison and thought he was doing what the commander-in-chief wanted him to do. And came out of prison and went to visit Nixon, San Clemente, uh, and said to the president, wrote a little book uh, about it, a very moving little book, uh, and said, effect, to the president, I-, I supported you. I I, I did what I sh- was told to do and should have done. And Nixon said, I didn't do anything wrong. And Ellsberg and, and Bud Crow turned around and and walked away. He was destroyed by this. So all of this was going on, and I had a difficult time dealing with it. It's certainly the most difficult, maybe unresolved part of my own uh, memoir. Um, I, uh, I, I well, Nixon sent me a, a, one of his books. He wrote many books in in retirement. And we were at the arena stage one night, and in intermission, there was Bill Sapphire, Sapphire. Uh, and Elaine uh, Sapphire. And I said, Hey, this is interesting. Uh, RN sent me a book today. What does that mean? And Elaine Sapphire said, It means he's forgiven you. And that was the end of that conversation. Pat Moynihan said, I must have closure with Richard Nixon. He said, I I will call, uh, and we will go up to New Jersey and and have lunch with him. I said, well, I guess you're right. But before we could go, Nixon's own memoir, RN, was published, and he admitted nothing. He said, I'm sorry. That's what he said. I'm sorry. That's how the American people. Uh, That was good enough for for David Frost, who made a lot of money on on claiming that, that Nixon admitted what he had done, which he hadn't. Uh, it wasn't good enough for me. And so I never saw Nixon again. Uh, I, I didn't even go to his funeral. Instead, I did the the analysis for, for C-SPAN. I don't know if I did the right thing. I don't know, but that's what I, that's, that's what I did.
0: And just to sum everything up, uh, just sort of the final question. You have been in Washington um, at the center of uh, politics, um, as you say, a bit player for um, over sixty years, um, how would you, in today's political environment, um, would you, how would you encourage people to be um, influential in our policy policy process um, as even as even a bit player?
1: Well, I certainly don't want to discourage anybody, certainly any young person, from getting involved and employed in, in, in public service. Our government is important to us. It does important things uh, and and needs good people. At the moment, it is a very unpleasant, very mean place. I don't believe it'll always be like this as we we've had moments previously in our history. I think we're at a particular moment right now. I, I can't predict, but but the, the, a president is starting his third year, which is the toughest year for a president. It's a year where this, uh, the staff start to, to uh, play favorites among themselves. Uh, there's all sorts of cracks in the cabinet. Uh, and when you put on top of that, uh, losing one House of Congress, the possibilities of a serious report, uh, the Mueller report coming out, which I think is apt to show uh, uh, some obstructions of justice, at least given that they've already put several people in prison, Uh, and given that uh, the the Democratic Congress, particularly the House Ways and Means Committee, uh, can uh, seek uh, the president's tax records, which he has Viciously protected. I <laughs> Vicious might not be the right word, but it's certainly uh, vociferously protected. And when these things start to come out, we are going to see uh, how the president responds. Uh, and so I think we have we have a very rough time ahead of ourselves. And there's no sense talking about what I think will happen the year after or the year after that. I mean, ultimately, uh, I think we 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 uh, our our country has. Has always been on an upward spiral, but it keeps having little shock waves, and then has to regroup. Uh, and sometimes, of course, they're quite terrible, like the Civil War. Uh, so uh, I'm an optimist for 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 America, but I'm not necessarily an optimist for the next 12 months or 24 months. Uh, but uh, you know, I'm I'm 85, so I don't know how much I'll see of it. But I have children, I have grandchildren uh one of my uh, grandsons, a college student, who was with me this week because he came down with college students from around the world uh, uh, to be uh, uh marching for um uh for the the environment uh and uh I, I i i i wish of course not only love but but great opportunities for people like that.
0: Our guest today is former Nixon and Eisenhower White House official Stephen Hess, who, um, in the book, is "Bit Player: My Life with Presidents and Ideas." You can purchase it at Brookings.edu or Amazon.com. Mr. Hess, thank you so much for joining us. A, pl- a pleasure, Jonathan. I enjoy talking with you. Please check back for future podcasts at NixonFoundation.org or on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. This is Jonathan Mavroides signing off.